From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin-A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. How can Democrats win in rural America? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I don't know if that's the most important question for progressive politics right now, but it's the one I think about the most. And that's because without power, there's no way to improve the lives of actual people. And that means you have to win elections. The Democrats have had their share of victories lately. After all, they still control the White House and Congress. But the reality is that it's not enough. To do what they want to do, Democrats have to win more non-college-educated rural voters. And not just white voters, but also black and brown voters who don't live in cities. There's a raging debate on the left about how to do this. Depending on who you ask, the problem is either too much wokeness on the progressive side or too much milquetoast moderation from the centrist. In the end, a lot of this amounts to an argument about how to navigate the politics of race and class. There's no easy way to sum up my view of this debate, but the one thing I can say for sure is that the left needs to build a real working-class coalition, and rural Americans have to be a part of it. In this episode, I talk to Brianna Joy Gray, host of the podcast Bad Faith, and someone who's emerged as one of the more interesting voices in this conversation. Gray served as a national press secretary for Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. But she's also a Black woman and a socialist. She brings a unique perspective to these debates, and I've wanted to engage with her for a long time. As you'll hear, she has a lot to say about race and class and where the discourse around these things has gone wrong. Brianna Joy Gray, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sean. Your story is so damn interesting to me. You spent a lot of your youth abroad. You end up going to Harvard Law. Then you become a corporate litigator, and then ultimately you land as the national press secretary for Bernie Sanders' 
presidential campaign. That's a hell of a journey. And I don't want to ask you to, you know, recount your whole life story here. But I, I guess I am really curious what ultimately pushed you out of the corporate lawyery world into the political world, not just the political world, but like being like an operator for a campaign. Yeah, well, I think the the first thing is what pulled me into the corporate lawyer world to begin with, because that was not a place I ever really wanted to be. You know, I was one of those kids who went to law school because people told them they were good with words and they like to argue a lot. <laughs> and that is not a good reason to go to law school. But, you know, I graduated from college in 2007 and the financial crisis happened literally a month into my 1L year. And so at that time, it did seem like a sure bet that, okay, you know, the the narrative is you need a, a higher education, you need to get some postgraduate degree. However, after the crash, the same kind of financial opportunities that enabled some people to pay their loans off at, at a better clip kind of dissipated and I got stuck there. So I never wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And it was really dispiriting for me. I worked as a, as a litigator for seven years and I honestly... You know, I was very unhappy. <laughs> I was very unhappy, but my student loan debt made me feel pretty trapped. You know, I took out the full amount for law school and I didn't see any other jobs that were going to pay me enough to keep up with the $2,300 a month that I owed the government. Good Lord, $2,300? Uh, $2,300 a month. Yikes. I was raised by a mother in particular who always had progressive politics. She's someone who often voted green. Um, Barack Obama, she often says, is the first Democrat you ever voted for. So there was a very open political household, and the discourse was never this kind of partisan binary that some people are ensconced in. So when Bernie came along, I was actually at work one weekend, toiling and upset. <laughs> and I got a FaceTime from my mom, who was downtown at some rally that she dragged my brother to with her arm flung around some stranger lady and the other arm flung around my brother shouting, you know, together, united, we will not be defeated and all this stuff. I'm like, mom, what are you doing? She's like, I'm here for Bernie. <laughs> and so she really hit me to what was going on in the campaign. And when I started watching the debates, it became very clear to me that this was the first time I heard my actual sincere humanistic politics articulated in the public realm in a way that was getting taken seriously in real-world politics and not just kind of a crunchy, granola, idealistic way. Well, Bernie is a good segue into, I guess, sort of the meat and potatoes of this conversation. But <laughs> unfortunately, I'm going to start at what might seem like a sad place. But trust me, I'm not interested in rehashing the 2020 election. It is over. But I do really want to know why you think Bernie lost in 2020. There are lots of reasons, obviously. There's never one reason why a campaign, you know, succeeds or fails. But what is the story you tell yourself about what went wrong and why that didn't quite work in the end? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to say that there's lots of reasons. First and foremost, and the one that I think gets skipped over too hastily by folks, is that the number one priority of voters in 2020 was defeating Trump. And whatever you want to say about why Biden won or why other candidates failed, I think fundamentally voters needed to believe that the Democratic nominee could knock out Trump. And, you know, when polled, voters thought that Biden and Bernie were best suited to do so, which is why they lasted the longest, you know, to the end there. But I think that Bernie ultimately was 
unwilling to land certain punches about Joe Biden and make the argument that Biden wasn't as equipped as him to beat Trump, that he was vulnerable in certain ways that, frankly, Hillary Clinton was, insofar as he had this lengthy career of being on the wrong side of any number of issues that really motivated interest in Trump. I think he has a sincere friendship and fondness for Joe Biden that ultimately came between him landing some really, I think, final blows that were necessary at that last debate before the shutdowns. I think another significant factor is, and you know, this isn't a hypothetical or this isn't kind of conspiracy mongering, it's well reported that uh, right there in the final stretch, Barack Obama picked up the phone and called the other moderates and asked them to drop out of the race. And I think that that's something that Bernie had to have anticipated. And it was his job to be able to get, you know, to 50 percent, even if the field was no longer crowded. I think there's some smaller things about messaging and choice of advertising, a certain kind of political gamesmanship and glad handing and exchanging of favors that results in key endorsements that kind of ideologically Bernie isn't that open to and I think makes him a wonderful human being but has some political downsides, rightly or wrongly. But at the end of the day, I think that he needed to make the case better to all communities, including communities of color. Right. And you just kind of hinted at where I wanted to go, right? Because I would say the narrative or the most popular narrative about what happened in that campaign is that Bernie just couldn't connect with black voters. And, you know, Jim Clyburn endorses Biden in South Carolina and he wins there. And then it's just kind of like a wave, an unstoppable wave of support for Biden. And ultimately, the narrative is that the vast majority of black voters were simply more comfortable with Biden. In the end, and that was the difference maker. I know this is a narrative that I'm not sure if it's correct to say you've pushed back on or undermined entirely, but you, I, I do think you think it's a little more complicated than that, right? Yeah, so there are a few things there. One is that we all know that Bernie did very well with younger voters, and he was, in fact, three times more popular than Joe Biden among voters, I believe, under, uh, I think it's under 40 is usually how they do young voters. I'm sneaking in there by hair. Um, additionally, throughout the campaign, he was always number two with black voters, right? And that wasn't covered at all. I remember I did an interview around that time with Al Sharpton, and he asked me, you know, what's Bernie's problem with black voters? And I asked him to elaborate, and he said he's not polling well with black voters. And I said, well, this is the most recent poll, and he is marginally ahead of Joe Biden with black voters, and he was just incredulous. But there's a kind of self-fulfilling narrative that goes on there, where every time you turn on the TV, there was somebody on the mainstream news telling you that Bernie just wasn't good with black voters. And it's not that every candidate shouldn't be endeavoring to increase their voter share with particularly historically marginalized groups, I would say, and particularly black voters who have been such a bedrock group for the Democratic Party. But it does seem really inconsistent that the second best candidate in the race with respect to black voters is the one that's perceived as having a black voter problem. I guess something like this happens with every demographic group. They sort of get reduced to a caricature in the discourse around elections and and the aftermath and all of that. But you are someone who was on the ground in these communities and because you were part of a campaign. I mean, what did you learn being a spokeswoman for Bernie's campaign when you made the pitch to actual black voters? Were they more Mm. receptive than a lot of people would think? How did that go? Yeah, 100 percent. The only real issue was can he beat Trump? Right. I mean, mean, that's why I'm saying that, you know, it's I remember at one point I went down to uh, Alabama for the Alabama Democratic Party, an Alabama Democratic Party event, which was like a black, it's a black event. 
And I got up there and I gave my little pitch and said, you know, I know what the black voter priorities are, so I'm going to speak to them. They rate education, housing, et cetera. I talk about student loan debt, which black women have more of than anybody else in the country. I talk about the maternal mortality rate, which is predicted most Maternal deaths are predicted most by being on Medicaid, having a two-tiered healthcare system where poor women are not treated equally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things that are part of this holistic package of Medicare for all and housing reform, housing as a human right that Bernie is arguing for. And people come afterward to me and they're they're like so happy to see me there. And they're, you know, proud of me in that way that sometimes older blind people are proud of a younger black person who they see as, you know, doing well, representing well for the community. And there were lovely conversations, but at the end of the day, they say things like, but can you win? And that's why I think the campaign just needed to hit that message harder. A lot of folks said, look, I have to vote for Biden. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Democratic Party patrons and connections that are, are going on down there and people know what side their bread is buttered on. And I think that sometimes the average voter partly because of the way the news is also framing these issues, really is, I think, taking some of the endorsement choices that are being made by institutional actors at face value. There's absolutely no conversation about the fact that Jim Clyburn takes more money from the pharmaceutical industry than any other person in Congress, and that that might militate in some way toward his choice to endorse Joe Biden, who also took more money from that industry and from billionaires than any other candidate in the Democratic primary in 2020. You know, I just saw a research paper the other day that was making the case that American politics has really radically been realigned in the last decade or so. And the big shift is that we're polarized now much more around education than Mm -hmm. even income. And for reasons we'll get into, I think that's really, really bad for people who tend to share our political worldview. But the kicker to the research was that the trend towards education polarization is only occurring among white people. Black voters are mostly unpolarized around income and education. And I don't know what the hell to make of that. Do you? Yeah. I mean, some version of this conversation has been happening since 2016 when Trump won. And the argument goes, if the swing voters we're talking about, the Obama to Trump voters are largely white. Although not exclusively, remember that Trump won a bigger share of Black and Latino voters than Republicans had in recent election history. But if the swinging is all happening with white people, then it must be that white people are being motivated by racism in a way that Black people aren't, right? And it's not necessarily that white voters are being motivated in every instance by racism, but certainly if you are not the subject of discriminatory policy, you might be willing to turn the other way, or you might be willing to prioritize something else. Let's say your belief that your kids aren't getting a good education under Democratic leadership, or your frustration that the Democratic Party sent jobs overseas in the 90s and your family has been struggling since. You might be willing to prioritize something like that over some of the racial dog whistling that came out of Donald Trump in 2016 and during his presidency. So, I I mean, I think that's some of the reason why Black people's, at least political behavior, stays more stagnant regardless of our education. I mean, honestly, I think there's a lot of social conservatism in the Black community. And the proper question to perhaps ask is, you know, why aren't more Black people conservative to begin with? And I think that but for the history of 
racial antagonism that has existed in the Republican Party since realignment is the reason why. And I don't think it's that much of a mystery why you have different kinds of voting behavior. This is a a good bridge to the politics of race and class and how to navigate them, which is Mm. really where a lot of the heat is, as you know, Mm. on the left at the moment, (laughs) certainly within the left. Where do you land on this never-ending debate about identity politics? I mean, I have my issues with the phrase in part because it both refers to something real, but it's also become a very sloppy catch-all term. Do you find it coherent or useful or just a, a kind of diversion or, or what? I mean, it's as useful as we make it, I guess. Look, identities are real. People have them. And in politics, a lot of alignment happens around people's personal identities, whether it's because you identify as a Texan or whether you identify as Black or whether you identify as gay or as a woman or any other kind of thing. And I don't think ignoring it is going to get anybody anywhere. So identity politics is a neutral category. It's not good or bad. What I have critiqued in the past is the weaponization of identity in cynical ways to advance political interests that are actually at odds with the identity group that you're pretending to represent, right? So the earliest article that I wrote that kind of went viral and started my career was about this very issue where we were. it was in 2017 and there was a lot of rhetoric still going on about how Hillary Clinton you know, lost because she was a woman and discussions about Kamala Harris, who had just won her Senate seat and everyone was looking to as the next Barack Obama. And I, in that article, interrogated whether somebody who was a prosecutor and not a progressive prosecutor, mind you, in California could rightly be seen as someone who's going to advance the interest of Black people when we have an apartheid state and a very unequal criminal justice system, right? Kamala Harris won her district attorney's race in San Francisco by using advertisements that were peak kind of 90s fear-mongering, right? With chalk outlines drawn on the ground, with the words enough is enough, with a Latino man with tattoos on his chest throwing up gang signs to kind of stir up fear that the former prosecutor wasn't locking up enough people. She attacked him on his conviction record, right? So, you know, trying to get people to see past the fact that Kamala Harris is a Black woman and look at what her actions and behaviors have been. And the same with Hillary Clinton. You know, she has been much more equivocal than Bernie was, in the history of his career, about a woman's right to choose and any number of issues that are perceived to be women's issues. And so challenging voters to think beyond whether direct representation is actually going to represent their interests that are are based in their identity, but not necessarily advanced by people who share that identity. Yeah, I think that's basically my frustration with identity politics. It's not about offending anyone's identity or denying the subjective truth or the reality of identity as a mobilizing force. But what I see is identity being weaponized as a diversion from materialist politics. And I think that's where I get frustrated. And maybe a lot of people who see the world the same way get frustrated. Yes. I mean, the very fact that if you bring up a materialist analysis, if you bring up economics, if you hint at the idea, even right now in the middle of a global pandemic and economic crisis, that somebody somewhere might be suffering from, God forbid, economic anxiety. (laughs) 
economic precarity, the economic anxiety itself has been turned into a racist dog whistle. It, you are, will be accused of kind of caping for whiteness or white supremacy if you acknowledge that even if white people, we all know what the racial wealth gap is. It's 10 to 1. But the racial wealth gap within communities is also 10 to 1. So the top 1% of Black people have more wealth than the bottom half of Black people, just like the top 1% of white people have more wealth than the bottom half of white people. And the most poor people in America are white. It's a 70% white country. Most poor people are white. If you want a populist movement to win, you're going to have to connect with and not disregard the enormous numbers of white people in this country that are suffering. They may be suffering at disproportionately less numbers than people who are Native American or Black or Latino, but to dismiss that suffering and play an oppression Olympics game is fundamentally destructive to any political project that is going to advance the interests of all working class people as a whole. That doesn't mean that at times you don't need racially specific policies that address specifically racialized historical harms. But to pretend that a universal policy like Medicare for all or housing guarantee is somehow racist, which People explicitly were arguing. I mean, I wrote an, an article for The Intercept uh, shortly after I arrived there calculating all of the different ways that people had tried to say canceling student debt is racist. I think that was a, a Clyburn gym where the argument was that it was somehow it was going to hurt HBCUs to make colleges free because then Black people would have other kinds of choices. Well, you know, Howard students are sleeping outside in tents right now because they don't have funding and their dorms have mold and rats growing in them. Joe Biden ran on a promise to fully fund HBCUs, but the Build Back Better provisions cut HBCU funding from something like $44 billion down to $2 billion. And we're being told that free public college so that these young students have options and aren't saddled with more student debt than their white counterparts for longer in their lives is somehow anti-Black. And they get away with this sort of thing. There was an article that said that having solar powers on your roof was racist. I mean, this, this stuff gets really incredible and it's all being weaponized by a frankly, corporatized Democratic Party that realizes the only way it can compete with a corporatized Republican Party. You know, we have two corporate parties. We have a duopoly. And the difference between them is that the Democrats, at least openly, publicly, say that they're nicer and friendlier and warmer to historically more marginalized groups, and Republicans play to white people. But at the end of the day, they're both playing to a more affluent constituency, and nobody is doing any kind of sincere working class politics, and the bulk of us suffer for it. There's an emergent debate on the left about something called popularism, which is the seemingly banal idea that Democrats should say popular things and avoid saying unpopular things. Sounds obvious, right? I'll ask Brianna Joy Gray about this after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. 
to get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. You know, the other big debate on the left right now is over what people are calling popularism. You know, the very Mm. basic idea behind this is that, look, Democrats should figure out which of the views are popular and which aren't and then frame their message accordingly. Simple enough. I guess there's some obvious wisdom to that, but also some limitations. And Mm -hmm. I'm really curious what your, your take is. I mean, why do you think Democrats are losing non-college educated whites and even increasingly losing ground among black and Latino voters? Is Mm -hmm. it a policy Mm -hmm. problem? Is it a messaging problem? Is it something else? Well, I'd say that it is definitely a policy problem, but not just that you aren't running on popular policies, which is true. They'll either run on them and betray those promises the way Biden has done with the $15 minimum wage and canceling student debt, marijuana decriminalization, et cetera, or they won't run on them to begin with. So that's, let's say, Joe Biden ignoring the fact that 88% of Democrats support Medicare for all, right? But, you know, we recently had an episode on popularism with Eric Levitz uh, from New York Magazine and Osita Nuevo from uh, The New Republic and Matt Bruning from The People's Policy Project that I hope people listen to because it was so good. They each went and I think the next day wrote an article about popularism. <laughs> it's a great it episode. Them. I listened to it last week. Yeah. And thank you. I appreciate that. But my feeling about it is having policies that are very, very popular is useful rhetorically, like I just did, right? If I can say that 88% of Democrats and 50% approximately of Republicans support Medicare for all, I can use that as a rhetorical cudgel to ask why the Democratic Party can only get 118 members of the House to sign on to the Medicare for all legislation, right? I can use it to draw a contrast between the will of the people and what our elected officials are willing to do, and then use that to open up a conversation about what's motivating elected officials other than their constituents. Oh, it's all this corporate money, et cetera, right? What I don't think is right is to exclusively support policies that you should be supporting kind of ethically, 
uh, as a matter of principle just because they're not popular. And we all are familiar, I think, with the examples of how unpopular the civil rights movement was and Martin Luther King was as a human being when that activism was ongoing. And some people look at, say, slogans like defund the police. I don't even want to say slogans. I say principles like police abolition. You know, that was pulling at 40% last spring, summer, after the murder of George Floyd really horrified the country and galvanized all those protests. What happened then was an entire summer of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party making the argument that to support, defund, to support these protests was to jeopardize Joe Biden's chances of defeating Donald Trump. And wouldn't you know it, when presented with that zero-sum equation, people started to back away from the slogan and their support from the protest in the media and in the public sphere, and the polling started to shift. Now, you could also imagine a world with a different kind of candidate who rode the coattails of the popular movement and the fact that even Republicans were very sympathetic after the on-camera murder of George Floyd toward meaningful police reform. You know, this is something that even Donald Trump and Van Jones and them were kind of working on together. Kim Kardashian, you know, there there is some openness. There are some cracks there among kind of the libertarian right on this issue to push the polls in the other way. But polls only are weaponized by corporate parties to explain why they shouldn't do something. And when polls are inconvenient, they're ignored. And there is absolutely no conversation in this country about the ability to use persuasion and what I would argue is the true work of politics to push polls for principles that you believe in, in a positive direction. Well, okay. You're a comms person. So this is something I really want to hear your take on. And and it's this kind of I guess we'll call it message discipline because Mm -hmm. I am very skeptical of the possibilities on this front and I'm desperate to be convinced that I'm wrong. I don't know if you're the person (laughs) that's going to do it, but I'm going to throw this out there and you can tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm right and if I'm wrong, why. My view is that what Democrats say is far less important than what voters they're trying to reach can hear. And we have a very fragmented polarized media environment. And because of that, there's a wall between what Dems are saying and what voters are hearing. And that wall is an insulated right-wing media machine that exists to reinforce conservative propaganda and just as importantly, define the Democrats in the minds of voters. I'm not saying that Democrats should say and do stupid and unpopular stuff, but I'm also not sure how much it matters or if it matters as much as we'd like to believe. Tell me where that's wrong or if it's wrong. I I think that, you know, Donald Trump putting those checks in people's pockets mattered. I think that Joe Biden promising to put more checks in people's pockets and then delivering less than was promised mattered, left a bad taste in people's mouth. I think Look, we're on COVID. We're still kind of shut down. I'm a professional podcaster. I don't get out much. (laughs) But one of the ways that I can try to sort of judge what people who are different from me in different contexts are thinking and feeling about politics is to look at the comment sections in non-political spaces, right? So I'll go to something like the Shade Room kind of hip-hop pop culture websites who occasionally post clips about political news and see what the people underneath are saying. And people are still talking about how they were promised $2,000 and didn't get it. People are still talking about it. I mean, the Biden administration is clearly trying to present an image that the crisis has been handled and the recovery is well on its way. And it's not to diminish what has been achieved on that score. But 
it does them a disservice to gaslight enormous amounts of Americans who are in a more precarious situation than they've ever been in their lives. And for whom a $2,000 check, a $1,600 check got eaten up immediately. I, I feel like a lot of people in those comment sections are still talking about, well, I thought my student debt was getting canceled. And I think if the student debt were actually canceled, if 44 million Americans, 44 million Americans have student loan debt. Seniors are the fastest growing population with student loan debt and the social security checks are being garnished at quite a clip to pay that student loan debt. If those 44 million Americans had their student loan debt canceled, which Joe Biden could do by executive order, I promise you voters would feel that and it would cut through a lot of noise of the Fox News machine. I think that when you actually deliver for voters, they absolutely feel it and it matters. And my last point of proof for that would be FDR, who delivered in such a way that they had to change the rules. He had to die. <laughs> he had to die to get out of office and then they had to change the rules so nobody could do that again because he got reelected so many times, right? Yeah. You know, see, that's the thing, though. I guess I always come back to media ecology, right? I mean, this is such a different environment than, you know, the world of FDR, you know, and I guess for me, I, I think less about changing minds and more about dictating salience. Because I actually think most people don't really have fixed or coherent views and they're pretty pliable. It's just about, you know, what issues are salient at any given time and why. And, you know, if a conservative candidate or the Republican Party, say, is determined to make racial anxiety or CRT or something like that, which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll hit in a second. They're determined to make that a salient issue by constantly talking about it and talking about it to an audience that is pretty insulated. Uh, what the hell is the Democratic candidate or any other candidate on the other side supposed to do about that? You cannot be reactionary. You cannot respond. You cannot spend all of your time explaining why CRT is right and good. I simply would not discuss CRT. Look, the answer is not to say nothing is happening in schools. The answer is not to say that it's a figment of your imagination or try to argue what the definition of CRT is. I might do that on my show. I'm not a politician. I would not advise any politician to get into the weeds and say, but okay, what's being taught is not really CRT. The point of the matter is we all know because we want it to happen that some degree of different kinds of education, the kind that I got where slavery wasn't mentioned in my textbook is happening now in schools. And a lot of the anxiety was actually about school closures, which Republicans were able to capitalize on this anxiety that parents had that their kids were not going to get the full benefit of the education they need because COVID closures had kept them out of the classroom. And so you've got to simply redirect and to your point about salience, counterattack with an issue of greater natural salience than whether or not some acronym that nobody had ever heard of before a year ago should be at the top of the list. So if I were Terry McAuliffe, and someone asked me a question about CRT. You know, aren't you concerned about CRT being taught in schools? I would say I am concerned, like many Virginia parents, that our kids are not getting the quality of education they have come to expect because COVID closures kept them out of the classroom and distance learning is really hard. And I want to make sure, as governor of Virginia, that I bring parents and teachers together to make sure we have these kids prepared maximally for the rest of their lives. And that doesn't just mean the workplace. That means to be good citizens of this country. That means learning about all of our history, good and bad. And I know that Virginia parents want the same. 
Now, let's talk about ways we can deliver on what your economic and social priorities are here in this state. I am for whatever increased funding or whatever it is that is in his agenda that's actually going to improve the lives of Virginia students, other than some bickering about legal education that a lot of these kids are never going to get <laughs> because you know their education system is failing them. Look, I, I hear all of that. And let me just say very clearly that I think Terry McAuliffe was a shitty candidate. <laughs> Uh, I would not have supported his candidacy, or certainly if I was a, a member of the Democratic Party, I would have pushed for someone else. But if you think, as a lot of people do, that all the, the CRT hysteria in Virginia hurt him, and look, it was incredibly stupid of him to say, I, I forget exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, you know, parents shouldn't be allowed to tell schools what to teach their children. <laughs> just what an idiotic thing to say. But let's just set that aside, right? If you told him, hey, look, the CRT stuff is hurting your campaign, just shut the hell up about it or pivot in the way that you suggested, which I think is the smartest thing you could possibly do. I don't know how much it would work. Okay, fine. But still, how much do you think that will help or matter if GOP operators and the right-wing media machine are working in concert to systematically make CRT or defund the police or whatever the hell the thing is that week or that month or that year, the central issue. Do you really think that's something that can be circumnavigated effectively? I do. And that is not to say that it's easy, but here's one thing that I've observed. And there's some people on the left, the Bernie left, the left left, <laughs> who have been having this conversation about yeah. why it is that our media ecosystem is operating so differently than the right wing or conservative media ecosystem. And part of it is that the left media ecosystem, the broad left, is divided. To the extent that there is coordination, there's very different kind of messaging that's going on in the corporate MSNBC media cycle and on the kind of like marginalized online bread tube left media space that I am in and that I've been cordoned off in because the mainstream media fundamentally won't have someone like me on. I mean, I am aware of the fact I was sent screen grabs of some poor booker somewhere who suggested me for a popular MSNBC host show who was blacklisted from working from that show again just because they brought up my name, mm. you know? So there's like a, an internal war here and it's because there's a real fundamental disagreement about what's motivating voters and what kind of messages you should use to redirect, right? So liberals and, you know, moderate Dems are very confident that just saying everybody's racist all the time is going to motivate people, and that is the punch to land. They did it with Trump in 2016 and lost. They did it in Trump in 2020, and COVID saved Biden. <laughs> they did it with Terry McAuliffe. And, you know, the Lincoln Project, former Republicans literally staged that weird tiki torch thing. And I don't know how many times they have to, they're even trying to make up instances of racism because that's the only play that they have. Because what do they have in lieu of this kind of weaponized identity fear-mongering? Nothing, because they won't simply support the basic policies that everybody wants. Now, I could be wrong. It could be that Joe Biden passes a $50 minimum wage, gives everybody another round or two or three or recurring of $2,000 checks, cancels 44 million Americans' student loan debt, and people still decide to go and vote for whoever the Republican nominee is. And, you know, if that happens, sue me. I mean, I think you'll still like the fact that your debt has been forgiven <laughs> and that your life is demonstrably better. But, you know, I'll I'll reevaluate if and when Democrats deliver on core promises that are enormously popular and still lose. But we literally have not seen that happen. The last time we had a minimum wage raise was 2009. 
<laughs> the year of our Lord, <laughs> 2009. It has been the longest period without a minimum wage raise since my guy, FDR, <laughs> founded the thing nearly a century ago. Got it. I can't. Now I'm just thinking about this MSNBC show and, and Booker. I would, I would love to hear more about that. Can we uh, can we divert for a few minutes to get the, sure. the, the deets on that? Sure. What, what show was that? What I mean, happened? I think it was it was Joy and Reed's show. It was Joy and Reed, and you know our politics are very different because she is a real proponent of a, a kind of analysis that doesn't really see far outside of who's racist and who isn't. And my attitude is, let's just say everybody's racist. You know, let's just concede, myself included. We all grow up in a society where we're imprinted with all kinds of biases and acculturated to them. And we're all struggling with it. Let's just assume everybody's racist. Nobody's caping for racist or forgiving racism. What now? What's the plan? Do you have the 10-step program to shame people out of being racism before the end of the next election cycle? Do you have some patented proposal that for some reason hasn't been put into effect yet that is going to finally force Americans to have their, uh, what Tanya Zikos calls a reckoning with race? Because if you've got it, I'm 100% on board. I will fight tooth and nail. I will do everything we can to end racism because, you know, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> However, in lieu of that, we need to be having more constructive conversations about how all of these voters who voted for Barack Obama, racist or not, ended up voting for Donald Trump. How all of these voters who voted for Joe Biden, racist or not, switched in Virginia and decided to vote for Youngkin. And what is motivating them? And if you are allergic to the phrase economic precarity, which, by the way, is not the same thing as poverty. Precarity is feeling economically unstable, not being poor. So, you know, I've gone back and forth with my friend and colleague Mehdi Hassan from The Intercept about this a lot. The fact that you point to some stat that shows that Trump voters are more affluent on average than Hillary voters or Biden voters does nothing to address the precarity argument because we live in a country where 40% of the population cannot afford a $400 emergency, cannot come up with $400 dollars of cash in a pinch. We have an eviction crisis that is ongoing. We have uh, 50% of all bankruptcies in this country are caused by medical costs, healthcare costs. They're medical bankruptcies. And the richest country in the history of the world that has minted how many new billionaires since COVID? You know? So if we're not having that kind of materialist analysis, and pretending that everything is reducible to the hearts and minds of voters. It doesn't make sense to think that this person is deplorable and evil one second, but be lauding them for voting for Obama the next. And it's not a conversation about whether or not they are individually racist. It's a conversation about what's motivating their voting patterns. And people who aren't willing to contend with the lieutenant governor in Virginia being a black woman immigrant who is beloved by these people, by the people who voted for Youngkin, can you be held racist attitudes and still like a black lieutenant governor? A hundred percent. But the analysis has to be more sophisticated than what some people on these mainstream TV shows are talking about. And that's just not a personal attack. I have no personal animosity toward Joanne Reed, although I am blocked by her on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it really does the country disservice and it does black voters a disservice and her black viewership a disservice and the white viewers who are taking her as an interlocutor that's reflecting what black people's interests and beliefs are. You know, I think it's doing everybody a disservice. And, and that's that's a problem. I'm black. I am invested in what happens to my community. Well, this is reminding me of some of my frustrations with this whole conversation about whether it's CRT or 
you know, quote, anti-racism and, and people like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo and what they stand for, what good or bad they're doing. And I'm not sure what you think about either of them. But, you know, my frustration, and I think you share this, with a lot of this kind of anti-racist politics is, you know, look, what could be more anti-racist than Medicare for all? Or, or what could be more anti-racist than a higher minimum wage, as you were just saying? But what I often see instead is a lot of energy dedicated to school curriculums or representation issues. And look, I don't want to discount all of that stuff entirely, but I guess I don't really give a shit how many white or black directors were nominated for Oscars last year? Like what we need are policies that address the material foundations of power. Fix that and everything else falls into place. But a lot of this conversation, at least to my mind, is not pushing in that direction. And and in that way, it seems very counterproductive. Yeah, well, I would say that it's not necessarily either or. You know, I'd say black actors are workers too. And some of their advocacy with the SAG union has been highlighting a lot of interesting issues. I mean, obviously, the whole Alec Baldwin tragedy has sparked a lot of really robust conversations about the rights of folks on sets. And, you know, I think if there are discriminatory practices that are resulting in labor issues for Black actors, then that's something that as a leftist, as a democratic socialist, that I want to be supportive of. But I am with you insofar as I think so much of the potential energy of the moment that we're in is diverted into these really niche cultural representational politics style of moments of equality as opposed to substantive maturity. It's about priorities. So, you know... I saw this amazing upswell of sincere movement energy last summer get turned into a bunch of Netflix specials. (laughs) You know, it's now just a movement produced by Ava DuVernay, who I have a lot of respect for as an artist, but whose politics are not mine and who has also blocked me on Twitter. (laughs) You're on a roll. Um, I, I don't, I honestly, I feel like I'm very nice, but this is what happens. I don't know, man. And... You know, it's not about whether or not there should be a Colin Kaepernick documentary, but it is about whether or not having those kinds of deals, whether um, activist and author Brittany Packnett Cunningham created a rich list to redefine the meaning of wealth in Mm. association with Glenfiddich Scotch whiskey. Mm. Now, I don't think we should redefine the meaning of wealth. I think that wealth is money. <laughs> and some people have it and lots of people don't. <laughs> yeah, yep, And that agreed. seems like a really gross sleight of hand Hard agree. to say, quote, Glenn Fittich has really been listening as we've been, I think, having the right conversations about what really makes us wealthy, what really makes us rich. If there is anything that this year taught us, it's to really hold tight to what's actually valuable. It's time that we're spending with our loved ones. It's the way that we invest in our communities. It's the way we create memories with one another. Okay, but also... There's an enormous racial wealth gap. You know, six families in America have more wealth than the bottom 50%. And this feels like a diversionary tactic meant to sell me dark liquor. (laughs) And that feels really gross to me. And I think that we should be having conversations about that and all the other ways that movement energy is co-opted. Barack Obama picks up the phone and not just ends Bernie Sanders' run, but also ends the NBA strike. Right? Which had an enormous amount of political potential because, unlike most strikes, these are employees who are incredibly wealthy, who have an incredible amount of control over their workplace. There's five guys on a court. 
They have the ability to go without pay because they're rich for long periods of time. There's no strike busting because you can't exactly replace LeBron James. <laughs> right? Like that had, and it had, it was a multi million dollar, probably billion dollar industry, the NBA, that was going to be brought to its knees for whatever demand these men made. That was incredibly powerful, arguably, I think, much more powerful than what Colin Kaepernick was doing, which is why it got shut down immediately and all of them got their little deals, right? And you asked the question, I'm sorry I didn't really answer, about uh, what I feel about Robin D'Angelo and Kitty X. I did read White Fragility, and my impression was actually that it's not as terrible as everybody makes it out to be. It's just not relevant for us. It's just It just shouldn't be a part of the conversation. I have not read Kitty X's book. You know, I think that some of the principles and framing are overreaches and are not productive in terms of their ability to move the people that need to be moved and instead teeter on the edge of a kind of performative virtue signaling about, you know, it says more about the person who reads the book or is already agreeing with the book than it does with any really constructive effort to change people's racial attitudes. And I think a lot of this stuff has some limited utility in a corporatized workplace where, you know, People said stuff that I didn't like when I was a lawyer, for sure. And it made a hostile work environment. And I, you know, I like the idea of someone trying to protect me on some kind of HR sort of way. But those kinds of lessons, HR, corporate HR, is not how we're going to get America to, quote, have the reckoning with race that we need. You know, I, I keep thinking about this book by a feminist writer named Jessa Crispin. And it was called, ironically, Why I Am Not of feminist. And, you know, she's attacking the kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean-in style of feminism that has triumphed where feminism sort of became a catch-all for self-empowerment and individual achievement. But, but for Crispin, right, I mean, if you, if you have women in positions of power behaving like men do, that's not a defeat of the patriarchy. That's just patriarchy with women in it, right? So it's not about getting more women on corporate boards necessarily. It's about reordering the value structure that made corporate boards so malevolent in the first place. And I guess I look at what's happening with some of this anti-racism stuff and see something similar, right? The fight is over culture war stuff and not over how and whether to redistribute resources and power. I don't know what we're doing here. And I feel like you get at something similar when you talk about this question of you know, who gets to speak for or represent the material needs of Black Americans, if it's Jay-Z or Beyonce. With their Tiffany Diamonds contract and... <laughs> right, as opposed right. to, I don't know, a Black union worker. Then, again, what, what are we doing here? Right, and th this is what happens when class is completely erased from the American conversation. And we've yeah. been stuck in this weird either-or binary where if you bring up class, people tell you you're erasing race. And it's my view is it's literally impossible to talk about race in any meaningful way that doesn't irreducibly lead us to basically defending Oprah's right to buy a $40,000 purse unless we have class neck-and-neck neck tethered to race in that analysis. We have a kind of racial politics in this country, and not just, this isn't just race, this goes for LGBT issues and in any number of minority groups for whom the disparity discourse feeds those at the top. And this is a little bit we got into with my conversation with Andrew Sullivan, where this came up during the campaign, you know, trans people face homelessness at a higher rate than like almost any other group. And the issues, so many of the issues that are resulting in all of these 
trans Black women in particular getting killed at the rates that they are, are also issues that find overlap with poverty, with, you know, sex and violence against women that occurs with cis women, with Black women, with people across all of these spectrums. It's intersectional, right? And trans Black women have it the worst because they occupy all of those identities, all of those, you know, vulnerable identities at once. So if you have anti-poverty programs, if you have Medicare for all, if you have a housing guarantee, those are the kind of policies that are going to help that population the most, right? However, the kinds of interventions you get successfully for members of the LGBT community are gay marriage. Now, that is not to minimize at all the relevance of gay marriage or the affirmation of humanity that so many people felt like getting that right was, not to mention the legal rights and et cetera that accrue with marriage. However, I don't think it's a coincidence that the kind of concessions our society is willing to make are those that don't fundamentally change the distribution of wealth in this country. Citibank can participate in the Pride Parade Mm -hmm. and advocate for gay marriage without being concerned it's going to lose a single dime. It is not the same for Black Lives Matter, prison abolition, since so many of these financial institutions are deeply invested in the private prison industry. The private prison industry is giving enormous amounts of money to many Democratic candidates, not just Republican ones. And this is motivating the outcomes we see politically and what these individuals are willing to back. That's why I'm really not interested in hearing about what a good person somebody is, what's in their hearts and minds, whether or not Joe Biden is a swell guy who eats ice cream and likes his dog. None of that is as relevant as who he's taking money from, who his campaign donations were from, and who he owes in this moment. And it can seem kind of cynical and mean-spirited to talk in those terms, but if Americans don't start viewing politics through that kind of lens, the material reality of campaign donations and the effect that those have and Democratic Party funding more broadly, who's funding the Congressional Black Caucus is a whole other conversation, (laughs) you know, then we're going to keep having these terrible outcomes. We're going to keep having Black mayors in predominantly Black cities not changing outcomes, not because they're bad people or they don't care about Black people or they're not working hard enough, but because they had to take that Bloomberg money and go through his mayor's camp to even get in that position, and their incentives are divided. There was a lot of hope around the 2020 election about the prospect for radical change and a lot of disappointment afterwards. So how is Brianna Joy Gray feeling about the future? We'll find out after one last short break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. 
Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Before we we do get out of here, I do want to ask, you know, I think there's there is a lot of uh, despair, maybe too dramatic a word, but we'll stick with it for now. A lot of despair about, you know, the promise of 2020 and, and the failure, perhaps, to affect the kind of you know, radical changes a, a lot of people on the left were hoping to see, wanted to see. Do you share that disappointment or are you encouraged by all the energy, even if it didn't? maybe materialize the way we wanted it to, or you wanted it to. I know Bernie didn't win in 2016 or 2020, but I still think his success says something significant about the potential of that kind of movement if it's packaged and sold in the right way. But I'm just curious how you feel about that. Yeah, look, it is both dispiriting and innervating. Mm -hmm. It is dispiriting that Barack Obama ended the NBA strike. It is also incredibly exciting how close we came to it happening. I think the crackdown you're seeing where they're ratcheting up the criminal penalties for people who are doing nonviolent eco-terrorism is a reflection of how vulnerable the state knows that they are insofar as they're participating in a form of climate denialism in continuing to issue oil permits, pipeline permits, all of these kinds of things as they're at COP26 saying that we're world leaders on climate change and that the dam is going to break. If we do live in a duopoly as we do, and there is no relationship between what voters want and politicians want, and voters want, you know, Green New Deal and climate reform and to save the planet, and politicians want that sweet, sweet energy sector money, that eventually people are going to start taking things into their own hands, and they're already trying to ratchet up an authoritarian state to prevent that from happening. And so it's it's scary but it's also there's something really deeply heartening about the fact that we are on the precipice and the crackdown, the kind of suppression that I feel I try to remind myself is evidence that something about what we're doing is working. And I would encourage people to really understand and lean into the potential energy at the moment we're in. Those protests are not over just because they happened a year ago and people aren't in the streets anymore. People still think and feel the same way about these things. And we have to figure out how to find solidarity and connection between us to focus on the things that will improve our lives jointly as a unit, as opposed to the things that divide us. Now, I really am giving just a Bernie Sanders speech. There's more that brings us together that divides. Let me be clear. <laughs> Let me be clear. Right, but he's right. And it's it maybe like kind of a platitude, but it has never been more true than at this moment. So I hope that listeners really 
realize their power and start making very concrete demands of politicians and let them know that there will be consequences for their departure from the will of the voters, be they electoral consequences, consequences in terms of protest or what other kind of activism, blocking Maseratis, <laughs> what other kind of creative <laughs> activism people can come up with to make clear the divide between the people who say they represent us and the people they represent. Look, I have my frustrations. I, I know you have your frustrations, but do you think the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party that we have, not the Democratic Party that we wish we had, do you think it can be a vehicle, a viable vehicle for the sort of redistribution of politics you want to see? And if not, what then? Well, Democrats better hope so. Like, the, capitalism carries the seeds of its own destruction, you know? And if they don't release the pressure valve and give people a little something— it could get very ugly. So, look, I'm a big advocate of third parties. I think that you got to break the duopoly. and I don't see any other way it's going to happen. I think the best chance at releasing the pressure valve was electing a relatively moderate Nordic social Democrat like Bernie Sanders, who just wanted to raise the minimum wage and get his universal health care like every other similarly situated industrial country in the world. And absent that, I mean, you might have people with pitchforks and machetes running through the streets. I mean, people are under a crunch that no one is turning their camera on. Like, people are struggling in a way that is not being recognized. And there is pressure building. So I think that Bernie was the Democratic Party's chance in showing how they behaved at, toward his campaign and how the corporate media aligned against his campaign doesn't give me a lot of hope, which is why, you know, I just recently had Andrew Yang on the show to talk about his third-party project. I've had people from the People's Party MPP on to talk about that. I've had Jill Stein and Green Party candidates on to talk about it. And people laugh and scoff at third parties, but I don't care what kind of party it is and who it is. It seems very obvious to me if there's not a credible electoral threat to Democrats, they will never pay attention. And that's why you see them hitting vote blue no matter who so hard and vilifying people like Jill Stein so hard is because they know what a threat is presented to someone who might just stick their head up and say, what if we didn't vote for Democrats? Look what happened to P. Diddy. Look what happened to Ice Cube, who simply said, shouldn't we get Joe Biden to make some commitments to the Black community before we line up and vote for him in the middle of this multi-million person global uprising around George Floyd? And the media treated him like he was a Trumper, like they were white supremacists for simply asking Jim Crow Joe to make some basic promises to the constituency that he needed to win. So I think there's a lot of power in that, but it's power being antagonistic to the Democratic Party, not just getting elected into it and subsumed by it the way that you've seen all of these progressives subsumed by it. Brianna, this has been great fun. I really do admire and appreciate the work that you're doing. Everyone listening should go check out your podcast, Bad Faith. And thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. 
And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. We'll be off this Thursday for Thanksgiving, but look for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations next week. This podcast was supported by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Listen.